0: Well, happy New Year, everybody! How's everybody doing? Anybody uh, go to Times Square for uh, for uh, New Year's Eve? Anybody? Nobody. Anybody watch the ball drop on TV? We did. We had a good time doing that. We had a lot of fun. Uh, Both my daughters were home—one from uh, Charlotte, the other from college—and we got to hang out together. And we actually had a little experimental kitchen in our den. We had a fire going, and uh, the girls wanted to make s'mores. So we made s'mores, and we tried to add some different ingredients, pretzels and Rolos and different things like that. Dad came back to the traditional, you know, you just got to have the marshmallow and the graham cracker and, of course, the Hershey bar in there, and that was good. But that is why the most popular New Year's resolution every year for the last 750 years has been lose weight because everybody has s'mores on uh, On New Year's Eve. Actually, if you kind of go through the New Year's resolutions, it's really seriously, over the last I don't know how many years, the number one resolution is always something to do with health. Lose weight, exercise more, eat better, you know, something like that. Uh, The second most popular kind of category of New Year's resolution is usually has something to do with finances. I want to get a better job, I want to save more, I want to spend less. Once in a while someone will say that they want to be more generous. You know, different things like that. The third most popular category are, is sort of the generic self-improvement. I want to be a better person. And different people define, I want to be a better person in, in different ways. Paul and Dave want to spend more time together. So that's kind of, you know, that's their little bromance thing uh, that's going on there. There was a, there was a, uh, a list of uh, top ten resolutions that I saw the other day. These were from 2014. I guess they haven't taken the poll yet for 2015. And the number 10 resolution, I was pretty impressed, was draw closer to God. I was like, that's actually pretty cool, because this was a secular poll, you know, it wasn't released by some church group or something. So I thought, yes, I like that, and I'm going to share that uh, this morning with you guys. But then I read this study And uh, it talked about the challenges associated with keeping uh, New Year's resolutions. And it talked about the frustration with the fact that we make these New Year's resolutions, but we end up breaking them almost as quickly as we make them. In fact, what they did is they followed about 1,500 people for a period of a year calling them every two weeks and asking them were they still keeping their new year's resolutions and within two weeks 29 percent of the people had actually failed and given up on their new year's resolutions within one month 36 percent had failed within six months 64% of people had failed to keep their their New Year's resolutions. And in the last week of the year, when they made those final calls, only one person said that they had kept their New Year's resolutions for the entire year, and that person's New Year's resolution was to stop lying to pollsters. So... (laughs) I don't know about that, but, uh, but anyway, you know, we make these New Year's resolutions, right? Getting serious for a second. We make these New Year's resolutions because we realize that we've got room for growth, whether it's in our, our health or our finances or our character, our relationship with God, whatever it is, we make these New Year's resolutions with the best of intentions, but so often... We find ourselves unable to keep those resolutions, and I don't know about you guys, but sometimes for me, it's actually more discouraging to make the resolution and fail, than it is not to make the resolution at all and just you know say, Lord, just help me to grow in this area. Because when I fail, it's like I, I you know I, I've kept the resolution maybe for three, four, five weeks, and then I fail. I'm like okay, I guess I got to wait till January of next year to start all over again with the self-improvement cycle that didn't work last year or the year before or the year before that. And it, it just gets to be this frustrating kind of guilt-inducing situation here. And that's not really the way that it's supposed to be. And when you've got a New Year's resolution like, I want to draw closer to God, you don't want to induce guilt in that kind of thing, we've got enough guilt in religion these days that we don't need to add any extra guilt to it. So the question that I want us to, to consider this morning is, really, is there any hope for real growth? And, and yes, maybe, you know, weight loss or exercise more. Yes, that sort of thing. But I'm talking about at a much deeper level, the level of our character and ultimately the level of our relationship with God. And can we do that without it being a guilt-induced, guilt-based, shame-oriented, failure-focused kind of a relationship with God. And as Michael has mentioned a number of times, especially in the month of December, our year verse for 2015 is Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, because he who promised is faithful. God is faithful, so let's just hold unswervingly to that hope that we profess. And we're actually going to be focusing on that next week. I thought about talking about that verse this week, but as I started studying a little bit more and reading the context, I realized there's some background information that would be so helpful for us to have, and kind of look at the paragraph leading right up to that that'll give us a foundation for where we're going with Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. So we'll put off our year verse for one week in order to get a little bit of a background of what's going on. And uh, Hebrews 10, 23 is obviously in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. And whether or not you've read through the New Testament before, uh, Hebrews is a book with which a lot of people are not familiar, because it's different than many of the other books. We're familiar with maybe Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels. Maybe you're familiar with Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, some of those letters that Paul wrote to different churches. Book of Hebrews is a little bit different in some ways. First of all, we don't actually know who wrote it. There are all sorts of theories as to who wrote it. We do know that the person who wrote it was almost certainly Jewish because he was writing to a Jewish audience or or actually an audience of people who were Jews by background both ethnically and religiously but they had become Christians they had found Jesus as their savior as their lord or from a Jewish perspective they had found him as their messiah and so now these were Jews and they're still Jewish but they're followers of Jesus so they're Jewish Christians or messianic Christians or completed Jews, whatever term that you might want to use there. And as such, they are intimately familiar with the Old Testament, much more so than most of us are. And so if you've ever read through Hebrews, one of the first things that probably strikes you is there are dozens and dozens and dozens of quotations and allusions and references to the Old Testament. And so a, a familiarity with the Old Testament backgrounds is so helpful to understanding what's going on in the book of Hebrews. And with that in mind, uh, this morning what I want to do is take a little bit of time and look at uh, the Old Testament tabernacle because that's the background for the paragraph that we're going to be looking at leading up to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. And I I happen to have a picture of the tabernacle here. This was taken uh, in the year BC, about 1350 from a helicopter uh, with a digital camera. Actually, back then it was black and white, but we had it colorized because we thought it would be a little bit more interesting uh, for you guys. Anyway, if you were an Old Testament Israelite living between the time of Moses and the time of King Solomon, between the time that... The Israelites came out of slavery into Egypt all the way up until the time that the temple was built. If you were an Israelite living in those days and you wanted to go to worship God, here is where you would go. You would go to this tent-like structure called the tabernacle if you wanted to worship God. And when you went there, you would need to bring an animal with you to sacrifice for your sins, whether it be a bull or a ram or a sheep whatever it might be, you would need to bring that animal with you in order to sacrifice for your sins. And so when you'd arrive, you'd enter into the courtyard and you'd, the first thing that you would see is that altar where they would offer as a sacrifice your animal. And the priest would slay the animal, kill the animal. There's going to be lots of blood, lots of gore, lots of smells, lots of noise. It's messy. It's bloody. It's an intimidating. It's not really an attractive kind of thing. You're not like, hey, let's go and slaughter the animal here for our sins. It's not something that you necessarily got all excited about. But that's what you had to do when you entered into the courtyard of the tabernacle. And then across the courtyard, you would see the actual tabernacle itself. And essentially, it was a a very, very large portable tent. And so when the Israelites moved throughout different places, this tent would be taken down and reset up in the new location where they were. And inside that tabernacle, that was where God manifested his presence. That's where, in some sense, God dwelt. And if you were an Israelite who wanted to worship God, you might long... To go into that tabernacle and worship him, but you weren 't allowed to do so. Only the priests were allowed to go inside the tabernacle. In fact, if an average Israelite got too close to the tabernacle or actually dared to venture to go inside, they would be killed because God was a holy God, God still is a holy god, he 's holy, he 's righteous, he 's perfect, and we 're sinful, we 're broken, we 're fallen, we are imperfect. We're unclean, and so in those days, they couldn't go into the tabernacle because they'd be destroyed if they got too close to the presence of God. And the priests could go in. They could actually go into the outermost room of the tabernacle that was called the holy place. But before they went in, they had to wash a ceremonial kind of a cleansing at the laver that's shown in the picture there. It's basically a, a very large wash basin, and they would ceremonially cleanse themselves before they go into that outer room, the holy place within the tabernacle. And in there, they would perform certain duties twice a day, doing things like making sure that the lamps were still burning, that the bread in there, there was some bread that reminded them of the manna from uh, when they were wandering in the wilderness. Uh, There was uh, some incense that they had to keep burning, different duties like that, that they would use to maintain that outer room of the tabernacle. But only the priests could go in there. Beyond that, there was an inner curtain. And with one exception, nobody could go through that inner curtain, into the most holy place where the visible manifestation of God's presence with his people was found. Not even the priests could go in there, except for once a year, the high priest was able to go in there. It was a responsibility that the high priest had once a year to go in and to make atonement for the sins of the entire nation. And he would do that on the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. And, and Jews today still celebrate that day. They don't have the tabernacle, they don't have the temple, but they still remember that day as the Day of Atonement for the sins really, of the entire nation of Israel. The high priest was only allowed to do this once a year, and every high priest could do it only once in his lifetime. So when you step back and you look at this, it's an unbelievably awesome thing, not just to be able to go into the tabernacle, but to be able to go into the inner room, the most holy place. The average Jew, the average Israelite, had absolutely no hope of going in there and of drawing close to God in this way. And the entire uh, tabernacle system was really set up to remind us of our need for God, to remind us of our sin, and in some sense to remind us of our guilt and of our shame before a holy God. Uh, As As the writer of Hebrews puts it just a few verses ahead of where we're going to be looking today, he says, Those sacrifices, he's referring to the tabernacle sacrifices, those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. No matter how many sacrifices, people offered in those days, it was just over and over and over again, a reminder that they're sinful, that they're guilty before a holy God, and those sacrifices would never ultimately cleanse them from sin. And so if you're an Israelite who has heard about the incredible things that God has done, and you've seen him manifest his power and his glory, and you want to worship him, you've got this tension because you see this great and awesome and mighty and powerful, and you've read about how loving a God this is. Yet on the other hand, you're frustrated because every time you draw near to worship him, you're reminded of your guilt and you're reminded of your sin and you're reminded of your inadequacy before him. And, and I don't know what your religious background is, but some of us come from a religious background where that's essentially all we heard. It's how bad you are, how, how much we fail to live up to God's standards. And while there's truth in the fact that we're sinful and that we fail to live up to God's standards, the question really is, isn't there something more or is that all there is to it? And so with that background in mind, with that Old Testament background in mind, I want to take a look at the verses immediately preceding a verse of the year in Hebrews chapter 10, starting at uh, verse 19. The writer says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence or boldness to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. Do you realize the radical nature of what this man is writing to these Jews who have grown up under this Old Testament sacrificial system. They didn't have the temple, the tabernacle anymore. They had the temple, but the temple was laid out essentially the same way as the tabernacle. The worship, the rituals, all of it was essentially the same as it was with the tabernacle. And they had grown up knowing that if they tried to enter into the temple to the inner part of the temple, they're going to be destroyed. And yet in verse 19, the writer says, we have the confidence or we have the boldness to enter into the most holy place where God's visible presence is manifested. We can go right in where only the high priest can go. We can draw near to God in a way that the average Israelite back in the Old Testament probably didn't even dream of being able to do. And the reason we can do that is because of the blood of Jesus. Our ability to enter into God's presence comes because of the sacrifice that Jesus made to cleanse us from our sins. If you remember, we just read, the blood of bulls and goats will never cleanse us from sins. But the blood of Jesus does. And the, the the main difference is how can the blood of an animal cleanse a human being from sin? Jesus being fully man, and, and if you've been around church for any length of time, you've heard that Jesus is fully God and he's fully man. The fact that Jesus is a full, complete human being, it means that his death can substitute for my death, for your death, for ours, because he's fully human. But because he's fully God, his death is sufficient to substitute for the sins of all of humanity. So uh, qualitatively, he's a human. Quantitatively, he's God. So when you combine both of those, he's able, by his death, to make it possible for us to approach God in a way that the Old Testament Israelites couldn't. God is still just as holy today as he was back then. And we're still just as sinful as they were. But the key difference is that the blood of Jesus has cleansed us. We who are trusting in Christ for our salvation has cleansed from our sin. And so God welcomes us into his presence with that. And then verse 20 says that Jesus is our great high priest or our great priest over the house of God. And the priests were the one who offered the sacrifices. And what this is saying is that Jesus is the greatest priest. And he's the greatest essentially because he not only offers the sacrifice, but he himself is the sacrifice. The Old Testament priests would offer a sacrifice of a lamb or a bull or whatever you brought to them. Jesus says, I'm going to provide the sacrifice for you. And that sacrifice Is myself. You've heard him talked about as the Lamb of God. This is what that's referring to. And Jesus sacrificed himself because he wants us to approach him, because he wants us to draw near, because he doesn't want us to stay out in the, figuratively speaking, stay outside in the courtyard. He wants us to come near into his presence and to be able to worship him and honor him and adore him and just enjoy being in his presence And that brings us then to the main exhortation or the main encouragement or the main call of this paragraph. Verse 22, let us draw near to God. Let's draw near to God. The writer says, again, radical. You're not gonna hear that very often in an Old Testament context. But in the New Testament, because of what Christ has done, the writer says to this Jewish Christian audience, let's draw near to God. The closest they could get was the courtyard. But now he says, no, you can come Right in, because of what Jesus has done, and He says, "Come in with full assurance and a cleansed conscience." Right? You you fail to meet your keep your New Year's resolutions. You do the same sins over and over and over again. You're an Old Testament Jew who's bringing those same sacrifices over and over and over again. And what does all that do? It just reminds us of our sin and our guilt and our inadequacy and our shame. And Jesus says. All of that, all of that is taken care of by what I've done. So you don't need to live with a guilty conscience anymore. I have a friend who, he just, he did something just pretty awful a number of years ago. And we talk about it time and time and time again. And over and over and over again, he keeps bringing it up, remembering what he's done. And he really has never enjoyed the forgiveness that Christ offered him. And he's trusting in Christ, but he's never really made the move from the head to the heart, recognizing that it doesn't matter what we've done. The blood of Christ has covered, has paid for, has atoned for all of our sins. And so he and I and you and we, all of us who are trusting Christ can leave that guilt behind us, can leave that shame behind us and enter into the joy of just being able to worship God and to enjoy his presence. So rather than reminding us of our guilt, Christ relieves us of our guilt So that we can, with a clear conscience, just draw near to him and enjoy being in his presence. So when you ask this question, you know, what does it mean really to draw near to God? You know, at the the absolute most basic level, drawing near to God means coming to him for the forgiveness of our sins. Saying, okay, I agree with you. I am sinful. I have done so many things that are wrong. I know I've disobeyed you. I know I've failed to do the good that I should do. I know that I've done things that I shouldn't have done. And I know that you died for those sins, that you made that sacrifice for me, that you, Lord Jesus, shed your blood for me in order to cleanse me from my sin. And I ask for your forgiveness. I ask for your cleansing. And I ask that I could be able to enter into your presence and draw near to you. That's at, a, at the most basic level, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about drawing near to God. And in just a couple of verses before this, in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, the writer says, God, speaking on God's behalf, their sins and lawless acts I'll remember no more. God says, you know what? I'm putting those aside. I'm not holding those against you. I am choosing not to remember them anymore. I'm choosing not to bring them up again, and they are no longer standing between you and me if you come to me and just ask for my forgiveness on the basis of what I've done. And when that really moves from my head to my heart, then my conscience is cleansed, and I no longer have this guilty feeling As I approach God. But beyond that, beyond the forgiveness, beyond the cleansing of the guilty conscience, we can also find hope and we can find comfort and we can find peace as we draw near to God. In chapter four of Hebrews, the writer says, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And we sang about that this morning in several different songs just drawing near to God, asking Him for help, asking Him for comfort, asking Him for peace in the, just in the everyday challenges that we face in our lives. So then, how do we draw near to God when we want to do that. Well, certainly we draw near to God when we come to church and we worship him and we sing and when we read the Bible and when we pray and when we take communion together. And sometimes we can draw near to God when we're involved in a small group and encouraging one another in that way. And a number of people really love listening to music that helps them to focus on God or, or even singing you know, and, and praying in that way. And all those things are absolutely helpful in drawing us near to God. But what we need to be careful about is that we don't limit drawing near to God to certain activities in certain buildings at certain times with saying the right things. And all those are good, absolutely nothing wrong with those. But drawing near to God involves more than going to church, it involves more than taking communion, it involves more than singing the right songs. And one of the things that has been really helpful to me in in applying this in my own life is thinking of those multitude of little choices, those little decisions that I make every day throughout my day on a moment-by-moment basis. So when we wake up in the morning, we can draw near to God by just simply making the choice, even maybe before we open our eyes or just after the alarm goes off, before you get out of bed, just stop. And pray for a minute and say, Lord, it's a new day. Thank you that I've woken up today. And if you're feeling down, Lord, give me some comfort. Give me some hope. Give me some peace. This day looks intimidating. Or I'm really excited for the opportunities that you're going to give me today. Help me to live those for your glory. Just simply by stopping in that moment in 30 seconds, 60 seconds, stopping and turning your focus to God. What are you doing? You're drawing near to him. Later on in the day, you're about to go into a meeting. Lord, just help me to keep my mouth shut when I ought to keep my mouth shut. And when I open it, help me to say the right things. Help me to say things that are going to be pleasing to you. The phone rings. Lord, help me to be a blessing to the person on the other end of the line. Your children come home from school and they start whining at you about whatever went on. Lord, help me to respond with love and to show my kids the kind of love that you've shown me. You're faced with a temptation situation. Lord, help me to resist that temptation. Help me to choose to do what's right. It's those little choices throughout the day. Each time we make a choice, each time we make a decision, we can draw closer to God or we can step further away from him. And it's my hope and my prayer, both for myself but also for you guys, that throughout our days this year, we will make those little choices to draw closer to God. And then when we come to the end of 2015 and we look back and we'll say, yes, I am closer to God now in December of 2015 than I was in January. So drawing near to God involves not simply those good activities, going to church, praying, reading the Bible, taking communion, singing, worshiping him together. It absolutely involves those, but it involves those little choices that we make throughout our days, where we can make the choice to draw near to him or sometimes to take a step back from him. So as I, as I stepped back over the last couple of weeks and was praying, was thinking, was looking forward to 2015, and as I was preparing for this message in the next couple of weeks as we're going to be looking next week at our verse of the year and the week after that at an encouragement that follows that, One of the prayers uh, that I've had for myself, but also for you guys, for us as a church, for us as Renaissance Church, one of my prayers is that we would be people who would draw near to God. We would be people who would want to draw near to God as we see him as an incredible, faithful, loving, holy, kind, powerful, forgiving, majestic, awesome, creative on and on and on. As we see him as that kind of God, it's my prayer that we would want to draw near to him and that we would make those little choices throughout our days to draw near to him. So that's my prayer that I have for myself and also for you guys. And I hope that you'll join me in that prayer. I would love for you to make that something that you would pray even just for uh, for 30 seconds or a minute or so every day. Pray first for yourself, Pray for your family members if you've got a family. And then pray for us as a congregation that we would be a people who draw near to God. And then as we do, pray that God would reveal himself to us in a new and powerful way, that he would change us to become more and more like him. And that as people look at us, they would say, what's different about you? Why are you a different kind of a person? Why have I seen this growth in you over this past year and that we'll be able to tell them, you know what, I was just praying that I would draw near to God and I've grown closer in my relationship to him and I'd love to talk to you about that so that you too can come and draw near with me to this pretty amazing and incredible and powerful and loving and forgiving and gracious God. So let me pray for us that we'll draw near to God this year. Father, I thank you. I thank you for the picture of the tabernacle that shows us your holiness and your power and your your majesty and your glory there. Thank you too, even though sometimes it's hard to thank you for this, I thank you that it shows us our need. Thank you that it shows us our, our our sin. Thank you that it shows us our guilt because that ultimately points us to the incredible sacrifice that you made when you sent your son. And I thank you for that. I thank you for the love and the grace and the forgiveness that you've shown us in Jesus. And I pray for each of us that if we've never done it before, that we would turn to you and receive that incredible forgiveness and that cleansing from guilt that you offer for us. I pray that today or this week would be the time that we would do that if we've never done it before. And for those of us who have, I pray that day by day, moment by moment, we would make the choice to turn to you, to look to you, to come to you to draw near to you and as I pray I pray that as we do you would reveal yourself to us. I pray that you would change our hearts to become more and more like you. And I pray that those around us would see that change in us, that new life in us, and I pray that they would be drawn ultimately to you and that they would join us in drawing near to you. And I thank you that you are that kind of a gracious and majestic and loving and forgiving God. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, I'm so glad that you guys came out this morning and let me encourage you, come back next week as we take a look at our verse of the year, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23.